Tani Lara is an NYC-based millennial, also known as a sober sexpert. Her book, Dry Humping, A Guide to Dating, Relating, and Hooking Up Without Booze, comes out September 19th, 2023. Welcome, Tani, to Sober Sex. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health, sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery, got expectable growth. You had asked uh, generously, how are you? And I will return the question and ask, how are you? And then I might answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the the Southern girl in me is like, I, I genuinely do just like want to know how you are. I love that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. You know, it's, I, I'm, there's just a lot going on and I'm just trying to take everything one day at a time as corny as that sounds, you know, I mean, it's just it's, it's like the post that we cling to of this life. I think it's very much yeah. one day at a time. It's like sometimes one hour, one minute at a time. And, uh, but yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and talk to someone else who's obsessed with my favorite topic. <laughs> I'm usually like just shouting off of the rooftop and sometimes people listen, but like you're just as in it as I am. And so it's very validating to be here. Oh, well, I'm really excited that you're excited to be here. And it's nice to have such a fitted guest for the show. <laughs> um, and so, so where are you? Where are we talking? I'm in from? New York city. Awesome. I'm, I'm a yeah. borough bred, so it's nice to, to talk to somebody live and direct from my hometown. And you said that you're a Southern, a Southern girl. So, uh, so where are you hailing from originally? Yeah. So I, I was born in Northern California and then mom and I moved to Waco, Texas when oh, I wow. was eight. <laughs> so, and dad stayed in Northern California. So like I, I grew up back and forth. I went, I went back and forth. Um, and then I've been in, in New York since 2015. So eight years now. Amazing. And I mean, do you feel, I feel like it's changed a lot, like kind of post COVID and even since I left in 2004, which feels like a long time ago, but do you feel like it's changed a lot since you moved? Significantly. I mean, I, you know, I moved here summer of 2015. So this was like right before the 2016 campaign, uh, elections and campaigns. Ooh. And so it yeah. was like, even more political than usual. Um, so that was a lot. And then, yeah, COVID completely changed. I think the city is still trying to figure out what, what it is after COVID. Yeah, no, I definitely get that vibe and it can be very kind of disconcerting because it was like the first place that I went post kind of post COVID being kind of a myth, but, um, like after lockdowns and stuff that felt like it was, like people were excited to be alive. I mean, especially because I was based in Paris during the pandemic and it was just like so kind of uh, like it very much felt like a kind of a nanny state. Like we had to like sign things about like the time we left the house and where we lived and show our IDs. So like people would be like, you can't leave with for more than an hour for outside of like a kilometer radius. And so going to New York after that experience, while that was still happening in France, was like people are like it felt like people were like barbecuing in the street it was insane yes no that's um, that's exactly what it what it was and still kind of <laughs> is it's just especially like I'm, I live in Washington Heights so it's it there's it's just kind of like a free-for-all here like there's a bunch of different cultures and it really is like a melting pot and there's just kind of free range, just kind of do your own thing here. People kind of keep to themselves. Um, and it's more quiet, <laughs> I think, because yeah. I'm so far up, you know, I, I, I really like living up here. 
No, that's rad. Cause I felt like it was like a little bit, you know, disconcerting also to be like, are we on the same, <laughs> we're clearly not on the same page, uh, in terms of like the vibe, um, kind of, it felt very bizarre to be like dropped into that atmosphere. And it feels, I feel like the kind of more, um, I don't know, like calm and less like commercial in areas, it can be a little bit less, uh, I don't know, like disgruntling. <laughs> That's the perfect way to describe it. (laughs) Word. I mean, and also I'm curious because I do think, and like maybe we can get into this later, but I do think that like sex and dating and relationships with alcohol are all kind of cultural like elements. So it's not necessarily the same in every place. And I'm I'm curious as to kind of what your read is on that because I I think part of the reason that – we, I started this podcast with a couple of friends and then everybody got busy except for me and I obsessed with sober sex. Um, but, you know, part of that was like kind of having discovered sexuality, my own sexuality, like, or what actually worked for me much like later into my recovery. Um, and I'm wanting to kind of interrogate that and share that and talk about that. Um, part of the reason that uh, I discovered kind of my vein of sexuality, which is like kink based or or BDSM or whatever, uh, was because I think the cultural codes were so complicated that it was very helpful to have like, to be able to have a framework for communicating sexual needs and desires that wasn't Mm -hmm. like based on assumption because like, I feel like in America, especially in New York or Los Angeles, there's a lot of like the person who likes the other person less has more power. And so you're kind of holding your cards close to your chest in dating and, and in France, like, people just discovered dating because like, I think traditionally it's been more hanging out in co-ed groups and then like getting drunk and pairing off. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Like, I feel like I'm hardcore friend zone and like, I don't know what's happening here. Also everyone's drunk except for me. Also like what I can't, like there's grand gestures and that's really disconcerting if you're like, uh, why are you showing me all of your cards? Like this feels very <laughs> bizarre, you know, like, so I'm curious as to kind of, um, if you've had any, I mean, I guess the book's not out yet. So that's very, I'm curious to see like if you get different feedback from different places um, surrounding where you like where you're coming from in the, in the writing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that came up a lot in research, you know, like while I was writing the book and I, I think it's funny how you say that like in France, they're just learning dating because that's really how I felt in sobriety. I never dated. <laughs> I just hooked up. And then it would either be casual or we would move in together. (laughs) You know, like there (laughs) was, when I got sober, I had to like really learn how to go have a dinner with someone. And like, it was, and I was 29 when I quit drinking. So that was a huge lesson to, uh, (laughs) to learn among many. Um, But yeah, I I mean, I think the, the conversation of liquid courage really mm. is so universal wherever I interviewed people. Um, and, and even the types of people that I interviewed, you know, I thought that this book was going to be for people in recovery. And of course it is, but I didn't think normal, normal drinkers <laughs> would be interested in this conversation. As I'm sure you've probably realized a lot of people are really interested, even if they still drink, they're interested mm-hmm. in, learning more about the role alcohol plays in their love life. Totally. And to be more specific, you know, that's why I named my advice column beyond liquid courage. Um, it's because I really wanted to help, uh, people that are in recovery or sober curious, um, learn how to date, hook up, be in a relationship without liquid courage. It's not, it's not that it's just the alcohol, in my research, it, I really learned it is this, this societal liquid courage, mm-hmm. no matter where you live, we're just, it's, we're ingrained and in like, it's inundated in film and television that it's like, oh, you need, you're going to hit on someone. You need to take a shot first. Totally. You're feeling uncomfortable on a date. You need to have a glass of wine first. And I, and that's just something that came up no matter where people are geographically, where they are on the sobriety or alcohol use disorder spectrum. And that was really fascinating to me. Well, no, I, and I think you speak to kind of an, a, a point that is like, you know, there's a kind of 
the the joke of like rehab is for quitters is very much kind of present kind of in <laughs> like alcohol use disorder centered communities. Yeah. Um, but like the idea, I think, especially when I, got, I first got sober and we'll talk a little bit about kind of both of our journeys to, to this place where we, <laughs> you know, have a, have a lot of information and a lot of interest in, in what sober sex looks like. But um, the idea that actually like to live without kind of, the false courage or any kind of buffer um, is really a very punk rock thing that it's like, it's kind of a radical and very courageous and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's gnarly. And it made me feel a lot better about, you know, not like wussing out and not kind of having like spent all my tickets too early on the ride. Cause I got sober when I was 20. And so a lot of this yeah. was just like <laughs> bonkers. Um, and so this idea of like, actually it's, you know, it's, it's doing, uh, something that requires, uh, integrity and tenacity and authenticity in order to kind of live in this way and, and, and kind and celebrating that fact as opposed to, you know, mourning the, the loss of, um, mm. buffers or liquid courage or, you know, kind of crutches to, to reality. Ooh, crutches to reality. That sh- that should be your book. <laughs> We're working That's- on it. Um, yeah. And you know, like the, the straight edge movement, like that came organically out of the punk rock scene, you know, because (laughs) like people that are like, that are into the punk scene are largely vegan. (laughs) They're more mindful. They're very deeply philosophical and political, like thinkers, you know? And it's, so it's like, of course, of course, being sober or sober curious is punk rock because it's going against the grain. It's going against what society wants you to do. Society wants you to use liquid courage saying fuck you to liquid courage is one of the most punk rock things you can do. For sure. And I'm, I'm curious before we get too far. Um, I know that you referred to yourself as a girl or but just to be clear, what are, you, what are your pronouns? She, her. Yes. She, she, her. <laughs> and one of our sober sex anchor questions that is, can be baffling, but is also kind of a nice opportunity to explore. Like what's your experience of your gender today? Um, well today it is 95 and very humid. So, um, my gender today is, uh, is <laughs> <Sweat>. very, <laughs> my, yes, I identify as sweaty And, um, I'm just like wearing as little as possible and I don't know why, but it's, I'm just, so I'm like, I'm wearing a skirt with no underwear (laughs) and (laughs) cause like, I don't know, I can't wear skirts with, I can't wear underwear when it's hot. It's just so gross. Um, and I'm wearing like a mesh bra. So I'm feeling like very, uh, very femme today, you know? (laughs) Um, and I don't know why for me, I guess feeling femme is being like, all like having my, my nipples and my, my puss out, but like (laughs) naked, I'm like, I am, I'm as naked as one can be while wearing clothes. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) That's cool. I mean, I think it's, especially like as kind of cis identifying people, I I feel like we don't often get the chance to like, think about where we're at on the spectrum in a, in a given day or in a given moment. And so it's nice to kind of have the, the option of thinking about that. Um, so thank you for sharing. (laughs) I appreciate that question. I've never been asked that question. Um, and I'm glad that you asked that. I've heard that you've asked that in a few other episodes. So I thought about like, huh, what am I going to say? Because I've, I've definitely spent a lot of time questioning gender. Like, what does it mean to be a woman? Um, especially because I have a quote unquote masculine personality. Some, and that really just means like, I'm a go-getter and I'm tenacious and I don't take shit from anyone. Is that feedback that you've been given or is that you're just like, I'll own that? (laughs) Uh, both. Yeah. It's it's both. Um, and then it's, so it just kind of makes me angry of like, why, why do you assume all of these traits belong to men? Why are these masculine Mm -hmm. traits to you? You know, I'll give you Um, (laughs) the page. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Just spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, okay, Rad. So, I mean, and thank you for kind of like considering that beforehand, because I think it can be a little bit disarming. Um, so, you know, again, as I mentioned, like we both are very interested in sober sex. <laughs> and, and I wonder kind of how 
um, you arrived at that topic? Like you talked about getting sober in your late twenties and like how, what necessitated your, your getting sober? Yeah. I mean, I, I was a, when I still lived in Texas, I was a bartender party girl, you know, stereotypical. You can, I'm sure you can picture it. Like I was dancing on bars, like wooing to Kesha. Like I was, you know, I was that girl. (laughs) Is it like coyote ugly? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was, you know, this is in Waco, Texas. I'm in a, I'm in a college town and I was a bartender for a, a long time. Like it took me a long time to get through college because I just, you know, couldn't get my shit together. I, I took the scenic route, let's say. Um, but I moved to New York when I was 29, um, to pursue writing. And I moved here, uh, June of 2015. And I got sober of that same year of, in November. Um, so just a few months. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, and that's, that part always throws people because they're like, you got sober in New York. Like how, like that must be the hardest place for me. It's the easiest place. Um, where I grew up, there wasn't a lot to do other than drink mm-hmm. and have sex with people that didn't care about me. <laughs> so it was really like, you know, they, in the recovery, they say pulling a geographic is not a good decision. And that means like, don't, I mean, it can be, I think like, don't move and think that all your problems are going to be solved. Um, for me, that is 100% what I did. And it worked. I had to get away from my family and toxic environments to really find who I am as corny as that sounds. Um, but you know, there was just one day I was sitting in a pub um, Finelli's in Soho. Um, it's a iconic historic pub. And I was just sitting with a couple friends and we were drinking, talking about, you know, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. Like we don't have time for our, to pursue our creative endeavors. And it just finally clicked. I, when I left the pub that night, I was like, I just spent four hours talking about how I don't have time to write. Mm-hmm. I was like, there's, there's something there. So the next day I woke up and I was like, not going to drink for a week, two weeks turned into a month. And then my 30th birthday was coming up. And I was like, what if I just don't drink for my whole 30th year? And I blog about it. So that held me accountable both for not drinking and for writing consistently. Um, and again, this was 2015, 2016. We didn't have the term sober curious yet, but that's definitely what I was. And, you know, the plan was just to go a year without alcohol. I thought I was going to drink again, you know, and, um, I did, I didn't (laughs) going on almost (laughs) eight years now. Um, yeah. And, but like that starting that blog is called sobriety party. If you want (laughs) to read some very cringe worthy early sobriety blogs, um, you're the worst. You know, it's, it's amazing. Like, yeah. Oh but I commend you for like keeping it up because like, that's, you know, I think it, it's so, it's, fuck man, like the grandiosity of new recovery is just incredible. I mean, <laughs> I'll speak for my own, but fuck. Oh, it, it is. It's like, you know, my, my father is a, is a heavy metal musician and I share that because I feel like you, you get it. Cause you've brought up music a few times. And when I call, he's also sober and I, I called him and I don't know, I was maybe a couple of weeks without alcohol. And I was like, when you quit drinking, did it like, was everything brighter and louder? And like, I don't know, it just feels like my senses are just kind of on, on fire right now. And he's like, yeah, it's kind of like reality's turned to 11. And I was like, thanks <laughs> dad. It. Yep. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, and I'll, I think I remember like a very specific day, like being in, in treatment and, which I guess is like the most acceptable geographic. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I do think that like often like geographics and like hoping, you know, wherever you go, there you are and hoping that things will be different is, you know, can be like, it's easy to poo poo. It's just like, if, if you're not, if nothing changes, then nothing changes to, you know, slam down mm-hmm. <laughs> sober cliches. But um, I also think that there's this idea of people, places and things. And that like I, from, I moved I, after treatment, I moved to Los Angeles because I like I didn't have any clue of how to live sober in New York, you know. And perhaps like being freshly like being freshly there, and then also kind of making a decision swiftly after moving was actually a very helpful thing because there were not the old patterns to necessarily fall back on. And like I didn't know where to get drugs in LA, and I made sure I didn't know where to get drugs in LA, and I mm-hmm. think that made my recovery much easier. 
That That's exactly it is, you know, and the, even the friends that I made here, I met them through taking writing classes, going to concerts, like doing things that like it, alcohol wasn't the center anyway. You know, mm-hmm. like we met because we already had a shared interest and that whether they drank or not, it didn't matter. Um, and that was, a, that was a big shift for me. And even still today, I, I, a lot of my friends still drink. Um, I have a ton of sober friends, of course, but I'm able to be friends with people that still drink. Um, as long as they respect my sobriety, you know, and I'm, I had some people early on who were not supportive and, uh, it's usually people that I used to that I used to drink with that yeah. felt like, well, if she quit drinking and she ha- says she had a drinking problem, then that must've, that must mean I have a drinking problem. Yeah. And, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know about you. I'm just saying I stopped do whatever feels right for you. But I'm sure you've, you've experienced that where people c- kind of treat your sobriety as a mirror or like as an attack, <laughs> as a personal judgment. As a per- Yeah. I mean, yeah, yes, for sure. And also, you know, like a lot of people who are like, it was not that bad. Like, I can't believe that, you know, like you made the whole identity out of recovery. And I feel like the also kind of in addition to the geographic can be helpful because it allows for a different kind of identity and different associations that like, you're not just like the girl who works at the bar. For me, I wasn't just like (laughs) the cocaine addict baby DJ. So it can be very helpful to kind of have to be known as something else, you know, than what specifically just like an addict or an alcoholic or it's somebody who just loves to drink in years. Um, and that, yeah, like, but I also find that a lot of the people who made those judgments initially, like, because I kind of kept the door open, they were actually, a lot of them are sober now, <laughs> which is cute. Mm, yeah, of, you know, of course. We all need, we all need somebody, somebody in the, in our lives to like be the first person, you know? Exactly. I mean, it's like people do need to see what it's like, because if you don't know someone who's sober, then you just compare it to what you see on TV and and films. And until very recently, we didn't have decent portrayals of people of what recovery looks like, especially for younger people. You know, like I'm so glad that that's shifting. Totally. Although I still feel like often it's very like, who is this like group leader? (laughs) Like I'm like always like, what, what is it? Like there's always the weirdest like 12 step format (laughs) portrayed. Well, and that's, (laughs) I'm, I, I did not go through 12 step. Um, but I'm, I'm a fan. I mean, I think it's, you know, do whatever works for you. It didn't work the, it wasn't my vibe. Um, but yes, I am definitely ready to see a character on screen get sober outside of AA. That's I think that's our next cultural uh, milestone. <laughs> Reach, yeah. yeah. I mean, and I'm, I'm curious also that, you know, kind of parallel with like you, you talk a lot about kind of the link between uh, alcohol and sex. And I wonder kind of what your first messages that you received around sex and sexuality were like how to kind of. How did that, we, we've we heard like the beginning of your recovery, but how does that mm-hmm. kind of like run parallel to like the information you were receiving or how you were feeling within sex and sexuality? You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that, like I said, I grew up in Waco, Texas, but originally from Northern California. So I was raised by a staunch feminist mother <laughs> in Waco, Texas. So my mom was, we had, we had a very sex positive household. She, you know, she showed me, um, like what, like gave me proper names for my body parts. She told me like what certain body parts do. Um, and she even like, she showed me, had me look at my vulva in a mirror and it was like, there's nothing to be ashamed of. This is part of who you are. And I'm just like, <laughs> how did you feel? You were just like, Oh my and God, I, mom. No, yeah, no, seriously. And it's like, <laughs> It's so funny because she did all of that for me because her mother was the opposite. Her Mm -hmm. mother was evangelical Christian who couldn't, you couldn't talk about anything like that. My mom didn't even know when she got her first period, she thought she was dying. Like, so she, she went the, the polar opposite route. She wanted me to know everything about my body. And we always had an open door policy when it came to sex Um, if I wanted to get on the pill or if I had a crush on somebody and, um, I'm also very grateful that 
um, both of her siblings are queer because that also showed me that it's okay to be queer. And I, I knew I was bisexual at a, I was about 13, 14. Um, and I, I don't have any internalized, um, shame about being bi because I did have that visibility. Like you said, we need to know someone to know that it's okay to be that way. And so I'm, I'm super, super grateful for that. So it's like, I had, I had these really, really powerful, um, progressive, um, models (laughs) and I was in Waco, Texas in a Southern Baptist town, um, receiving abstinence only sex ed at school and hearing tons of homophobic slurs, you know? So it was like this really, it's confusing. Wild. Yeah. yeah, it was very, very confusing. Um, but you know, I <laughs> I I think growing up like that, I, I jokingly kind of call myself the Republican whisperer because <laughs> I'm able to talk to Republicans about um just about politics, you know, without like I'm able to meet them where they are because I get it. I grew up around it. Like if, and um, I'm, I guess I'm getting off topic here, but. No, but I mean, I think that that's <laughs> like, it speaks to this, like not a split, but this idea of like knowing who you are and accepting who you are. And then also being within a culture where you're like, wow, that's a lot of information about why yeah. I should be ashamed of who I am. Um, and I wonder kind of like, you know, you, you talk a little bit about, uh, in the earlier about having sex with people who didn't care about you. And like, I wonder kind of how your alcohol use like affected your like early sexual experiences. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, like I just said, I had so many tools. I had, you know, a sex positive mom. Uh, we had an open door policy. Like she was, she did her best, you know? Um, but I was still a teenager and I was still going through shit. And I did find solace in self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. And that is a, is a pattern that I continued until, you know, from age 14, 15, until I quit drinking at 29. So all of that time was, you know, all of, all of that time was me having, you know, drunk or inebriated relationships and sex and friendships. And, you know, my whole life, um, was seen through this kind of a drunk lens. And I, you know, it's textbook. I, now I can look back and see, well, oh, okay. I was undiagnosed anxiety and depression Mm. and PTSD. I had, I was, now I can see what I was dealing with and why alcohol worked so well. Yeah. I was actually a great solution at the time. (laughs) Exactly. Like now I understand what I was doing. Um, And I can give myself a little bit of grace for um, allowing these, I don't want to say terrible people because I think, you know, I just, I got involved with some people that didn't really care about me and because I didn't really care about myself Mm -hmm. and that's not to give them, you know, a pass, but it was just, it was a very unhealthy, toxic situation for, for a a really long time. Um, And I'm almost eight years sober now and I'm, I'm in a long-term relationship. We've been together for almost five years and he is also sober and, um, it's, you know, it's still, as you know, probably it's, you know, sexuality and gender, all of this is like an ongoing, uh, journey along with our sobriety. And it's like, just cause I've been in a long-term relationship with someone, it doesn't mean that's like, everything's everything's kosher. We're good. It's like, that's actually where the work begins. And I, and I'm able to reflect on like, wow, now that I'm being treated well, I can actually process some of the horrible things that happened because I know what it should be like now, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think also like, that's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I do think like recovery and kind of having you know, actively sober sex, is, it can be such a helpful baseline. But even within that, like, you know, I've been sober for most of my sex life, but um, it's only in this last relationship, and perhaps you relate, that like 
I've been able to unpack some of my own stuff because like, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're making good decisions, <laughs> alas. <laughs> um, and I wish that weren't the case. So to have kind of a guide to be, you know, supportive on that journey is really, really helpful, especially because I do think, you know, like without the excuse of like drunk goggles or mm. like, you know, like being messy relationally, just generally, like, I mean, I know I caused a ton of chaos in my early recovery, just like being a maniac yeah. and not knowing how to behave and like, you know, being 20, of course. But the idea of actually like that being to have a new baseline, which is, you know, both people are on the same plane in the same universe and being able to kind of have, you know, adult relationships from that place, as opposed to just being like, we don't have to deal with anything because we're constantly getting fucked up and that can kind of smooth (laughs) us through, you know, periods of discomfort. Like what a powerful tool to actually, you know, again, be in adult relationships. Well, yeah. And it's, it feels great to be with someone who's in recovery. I mean, when I was, you know, I've been sober for a while and I've dated some people that are not sober, um, which is fine. You know, I really didn't think I'd end up with someone sober. I knew I couldn't, I couldn't end up with someone who gets shit faced. You know, that's not, that's not okay. Like I personally, I can't put my sobriety around that. Um, but if you have a glass of wine at dinner or whatever, like that was fine. I didn't mind dating people who drank that way. Um, but it's like, you know, Nick gets it. He speaks our language and it really is a language. Um, and he's able to show up for me because he knows what, what it feels like to be sober, to be in recovery, to be triggered, to want to have a drink, but you know that you can't. And it's just, it feels, it's really validating. And I'm also able to show up for him in that way. And it's just, it's healthy. Like we're both, we're both individually in therapy and take, you know, working our own, you know, (laughs) working on our program, like working our own programs and like, we're doing what works for us. And, um, but you know, I'm still, I'm still learning so much about my own recovery, my own mental health, my own relationship with sex. It, I'm still learning about it. At, you know, I learned so much about myself <laughs> writing this book and interviewing people. Um, the whole process was, was so cathartic, just talking to other people like us that, that relied on alcohol and liquid courage in the bedroom. You know, it was, educational for me too. For sure. And I mean, I, I like, I mean, my partner is not, he's not sober and he's like the first person I've dated long term who's not sober. And it's actually been really nice because he, like, he starts to get like, to speak the language after, after like six and a half years, which is cute. But like, I do think that there is this element also of wanting, like wanting to be with somebody who understands what that kind of like, what a craving feels like, et cetera. And like, I feel like he's probably a hard drinker who like stopped, he'd like one of the stopped in time kind of yeah. <laughs> kind of guys and could like pull it back from needing to go totally abstinent. But this idea of also being with somebody who understands like that, like the mental angst that a lot of alcoholics carry with us and, and can kind of meet that level of intensity. Because often I think you know, and this goes for, for sex also. It's like, I want absolute intensity or annihilation, like no in between. Thank you very much. And like, that can be a hard, it <laughs> can be a hard quality quality to bring into a relationship, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, speaking of liquid courage, like I'm curious, uh, what are some instances in your own experience of sober date, dating that have required intrinsic courage? I love the question. Um, you know, I, one, one of the biggest questions I get is like, how do I feel sober or how do I feel confident in bed or on a date without alcohol? And I remind people that just questioning your relationship with alcohol in a booze soaked world, like we just said, is one of the most badass confident things you can do. So that's something that I remind people of like, you're, you're confident enough to give up alcohol like, or to be, or to drink less that bring that confidence on the date, bring that confidence in the bedroom. And the reason that I share that is because that's something that I had to figure out on my own, you know, through, through my own sober dating, through my own sober sex experiences, 
there were moments where I was so terrified of like, how the hell am I going to do this without alcohol? Like I said, I had no idea how to even go on a date drinking. I didn't even date. So like this was so new and so scary. And I just had to keep reminding myself, like you, you don't, you don't need liquid courage. You don't need, you don't need to drink whiskey to, to get through this. Like you took a really, strong, audacious step to, uh, to stand up for yourself and your mental health. Like that's, that is intrinsic courage. That is real, authentic confidence. And I still, I still channel moments like that when I'm having, um, you know, a work meeting that I'm stressed out about or, or anything. It's like, I don't, I don't need something outside of me to get, to, to feel good about myself, you know? And, um, it's that, like I said, I'm almost eight years sober and I'm still reminding myself of this. It's, it doesn't go away. You know, it just, it definitely gets easier, but I, I don't think people realize how, how badass it is to not drink or to at least question your relationship with alcohol. So if you can just bring that onto the date, that's, that's going to, you're going to be a couple steps ahead for sure. Totally. I mean, and also I think that that, like that Dan Savage says it a lot, like knowing one thing about you, like their reaction to one thing about you tells you everything you need to know about them. Right. That it's yep. like the most amazing barometer of like, is somebody supportive of my mental health? Is somebody supportive of my recovery? If they're not like, I have no business being with them. If I have to feel like I have to convince them that like, this is a good move for me, <laughs> like get the fuck out. And yes, and that like the window of tolerance kind of surrounding that grows, right? So that like, you know, it's, and I, I think that one of the most beautiful things about recovery and like, and the kind of courage that you talk about is that it turns, like, as our kind of somatic um, barometer becomes more sensitive, like, and again, like the window of tolerance gets bigger, it starts to feel like that, A, I can start to trust my body and feel like mm-hmm. um, that if my body says, I don't want to do something that it's like, it's coming from a sane place and that I should listen to that. But that if there's that kind of like, like little friction, like excitement that I can't tell is anxiety or not, especially around kind of like a career move or like being asked to grow, that that's actually the direction I need to walk in. (laughs) But it's such a subtle difference. And I do think it takes time to like build the, build, um, recognition of what is like healthy fear of doing something new or challenging Mm. Right. And what's like fear that like my, like I'm violating my own consent. Yeah. And And that's, that's, that's such a good point. I mean, it really is, you know, it's, it, this is mindfulness. This is feeling your feelings. This is like you said, what is, what is the fear? Why am I actually scared of going on a date without alcohol? What, why do I feel more confident in bed after a couple drinks, like what, what role does liquid courage serve in my life? That's, you know, as you've, you've read the book. So it's like, you know, each chapter ends with these writing prompts or meditation prompts or therapy, whatever you want to do with them. But it's, it's really asking the reader to dig in to that. Why are you reaching out? What is this? What is the feeling? What is that feeling in your stomach, in your heart, in your mind that is so uncomfortable that you're reaching for a drink? That's like, that's the meat there. Like, that's really what we're getting at. It's, it's, you know, I'm not anti-alcohol. I it's, I'm anti, you know, societal pressures created or that alcohol has created. <laughs> like I'm anti-capitalism. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So it's yeah. like, you know, if you can have a drink, like do it good for you. But it's like, I would just encourage you to be mindful. Like, why are you grabbing that drink? What is the, are you really just can you relax after one glass of wine and stop there? Amazing. Good for you. I never learned how to do that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or are you hoping that this, you know, liquid elixir can make you feel more confident when you're on a date? And if that's the, if that's the answer, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. How else can you replicate that feeling? Like, and that's, you know, that's really where the work is. Yeah. Like, what do you need to feel supported and present and grounded? Yeah. Like, cause I've like, and I think that that's a complicated question too, because like on the spectrum of like alcohol or drug use disorder, alcoholism and like hard drinker or whatever that like, 
um, it gets very confusing if you're like, well, my goal is actually to be none of those things. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am a cocaine addict. I don't really want to be here. I want to be like numb and feel very cool. <laughs> like, and so then the, the question becomes like, okay, so like what would support you in wanting to be more present? Like it's, it's to want to want to, it's like, there's also a, like a multi-level, like come back, you know, what makes the presence yeah. so intolerable. Right. Oh, I mean, and I do wonder, cause like, I feel like, you know, I talk about it on the podcast, like sexually adventurous enough, you know, but it's also interesting to be like, I, cause I do think, especially in the world of kind of kink or more like extra, <laughs> extra sex <laughs> um, <laughs> that like, I do wonder, like I, I've never done like group sex sober. And I wonder like, is that because my body's like, no, thank you too awkward. <laughs> or if it's just like, I, I don't know. I wonder what, how, I guess if you're super into that stuff, that it would be much more safe to participate in sober. But, you know, I wonder kind of in your research, what you discovered about people's relationship with their sexuality that kind of evolves, you know, in recovery. I, lo I love this question because, you know, I interviewed, I interviewed people that are like actual porn stars <laughs> that are sober and I've, you know, just to show the spectrum of the types of voices that I've chatted with, like people that are professional, like have sex professionally mm -hmm. and people that are asexual, people that mm -hmm. realized I actually don't like sex at all. And I think that's, that is the, that's sexual liberation right there is like sure. you figure it's you figuring out the, what, like, what does sex mean to you? What does gender mean to you? what do you even like sex, <laughs> you know? Um, and a lot of several of the asexual people that I interviewed are, they told me that they used alcohol because they mm. tried to make themselves feel normal. They tried to make themselves like sex because they saw, they thought something was wrong with them. Then they got sober and they realized, wait, I actually don't like this. And th for them, that's sexual liberation. Yeah. And you know, and then there's also people on the other end of the spectrum that are exploring, you know, getting into the adult entertainment industry or going to sex parties and exploring kink, BDSM. Like, you know, there's that's also sexual liberation. And there's also in, you know, in the middle, <laughs> there's, you know, all of this is a spectrum. So, you know, I, I think it really is figuring out what se sexual liberation means to you and also unlearning all of the societal shit that we've been inundated with, with, you know, growing up reading Cosmo five ways to please your man and have the best, <laughs> give your man the best orgasms and, um, you know, unlearning all of that and figuring out, do I like this? Am I, is, do I like it? But this, this, this particular position is performative. Mm -hmm. I only do this position to please someone else. Um, I, but I actually don't like it anymore. Like, what there, and there's no wrong answers here. Um, and you know, in the book, there's so many prompts to get, to get readers to, to figure, to figure all of this out because it's so complex. It is so complicated and it's, you're not going to figure it out by just journaling <laughs> for a few minutes. It's like, it can it's take years. <laughs> it is a journey and it, it can take, it will most likely take years for you to figure it out. And, um, and even I, then it'll change, which is also very frustrating. I'm, I'm finding presently, <laughs> like based on who change. one is with or like where you're at in your life right now, right? Because it's like the part of the beauty and also the challenge of both recovery and kind of sexual exploration is that they're both kind of moving targets, right? There's not like a static, yep. like, this is it, baby. <laughs> like, well, exactly. And it's it's also like, you know, I, I drank because I was self-medicating now that I'm in therapy and I, I have proper diagnoses and medication. I know my, like I am significantly healthier. I was trying to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol, mm -hmm. but I actually needed Lexapro. I really just, <laughs> I really needed an SSRI so my brain could work properly. And, you know, and that's, that's very common for folks in recovery to get on anxiety or depression or PTSD medication. And those side effects or those medications also have side effects that can impact your libido. They can totally. impact your sex drive. 
it's definitely, it's, it has and is happening for me. And it's very, it's really frustrating. Um, but but it's like, I've also tried to wean myself off of Lexpro because I miss having a libido. And then, (laughs) and then I have a libido, but I want to die. So then I'm like, so I'm like, okay, well, (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah. So I guess I'd rather not want to die, um, and have to work a little harder to get in the mood, you know? Um, and the reason I share that is because I don't think people realize how complex sober sex is. It's not just sex without alcohol. It is sex being present, sex being with someone that like respects you and you respect them and you respect yourself. It's, you know, if you need to be on any sort of medication, you have taken care of yourself enough to physically be present with another person. It's, it's so much more like not drinking is the quote unquote easy part. You know, it's really figuring out why you drank and why you used alcohol in bed in the first place. For sure. And I mean, I do, again, like, thank you for kind of sharing that part with us because I, I know that the kind of, you know, trifecta of mental health, <laughs> sexuality and recovery, it can be such a kind of like challenging, you know, not to crack and, and, and again, like a moving target. And I wonder kind of outside of medication and therapy, um, as you started to kind of hone in on this as a topic for your book and like look at, I guess, at your own kind of dating history and, and I don't know, dating goals is like a weird word, but like, I, it sounds like wanting to get into a healthy relationship with somebody yeah. that you felt safe and comfortable and that you, you know, could, could share a life with, like, what were some of the tools that you were using, um, as you started to kind of get into this space? Into the, like, to writing about it or the, like, writing actual... about it, but also kind of like, so it's, it, it does. It doesn't sound like this was a kind of conscious, like focus as you stopped drinking. That this was kind of like you were starting to date sober, and you're like, "Oh shit, this yeah. is the thing." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it really it it all happened organically. You know, I started the blog and just documented kind of daily life, and then as I lived my daily life, I eventually started dating and having sex and doing all of these things, and I was like okay, this is hard. (laughs) Like I can't, I can't be the only one struggling with this. And so, you know, like I Googled and there weren't, there were not a lot of articles about this. There was only like one book that I found sex and recovery by Jennifer Matesa, which is fantastic. Um, and, but it's, it's through a 12 step lens, which I, that like, I didn't do, like I said, I didn't do the 12 steps. So I wanted something that was maybe just, I, I, it's, it's a phenomenal resource, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, but I, I also didn't feel seen in it, you know? So, um, I just started blogging about the sober dating, sober sex, posting about it on Instagram, like not explicitly, but just talking about like, Hey, this is hard. I'm struggling with sober dating. How are you guys doing it? And then I realized like, you know, obviously I'm not the only <laughs> no one, one struggling. <laughs> Everyone is also struggling with this. Um, but you know, it's like, I just went to the (laughs) Instagram community and started talking about it and it just, it, yeah, it happened organically. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that I was able to figure out how to do it, you know, with kind of like a DIY peer support of like these online support groups and like hashtag sober, hashtag sober curious community. Like, I met my podcast co-host through Instagram. Like it's, it's crazy. Um, but that's how, that's how I started writing about it, you know? Um, and now there's sober dating apps and now there's like, there's so many articles of coming out about alcohol-free dates and, um, you know, the dating app hinge, they did a study in the summer of 2022 where they interviewed 3000, um, millennials and Gen Z's um, all over the world. Like this was a global survey, 3000 asking like what they're looking for in first dates. And, uh, 75% of these people said that they're looking for alcohol free first dates. 
And these are not, these are not sober people. (laughs) Seriously. Like, and that's what was so fascinating is like, they weren't interviewing sober people. They were just interviewing just people, (laughs) people that are dating. And they're like, like, that was just so shocking to me. Um, and, but also validating because that study came out while I was writing my book and I was like, I sent it to my, to my editor and I was like, look, people are really interested in this topic. That's awesome. I mean, you and know? again, like super validating and like, because I do think that like, especially kind of given the cultural lens of, you know, liquid courage and, you know, every, you mentioned like everywhere from sex in the city to, you know, like the just the idea of like going out for drinks you know as like kind of an activity <laughs> just like yeah. getting drunk as an activity for a date um that to kind of move in the other direction like i think it can be helpful to have you know resources even if you're not like recovery is what i need in order to not die of alcoholism totally um, and I do wonder, like, in your, like, I, fuck, man, without, without kind of being, being um, trauma sensitive, I do wonder if you have any, like, funny or silly or ridiculous anecdotes about early, early sober sex or early sober dating, because I know that I made some really bad decisions <laughs> in my early sober dating attempts. Okay, well, I'll share one, and then I would love to hear one of yours. <laughs> <laughs> um I was on a coffee date, like a walk, a walking coffee date. Um, I think we probably met on Tinder or Bumble or something. And I was, I don't know, maybe like two years sober. Um, and we were just going for a walk through Soho, drinking coffee. And he finds out that I'm sober and he's like, he was like, oh, you don't drink. He's like, so what do you do for fun? And I was just like, like literally anything else. Um, <laughs> so many and I just, yeah, yeah, I was like, that's when I kind of knew I was like, great. It's going to be one of those dates. Like, I'm not going to see this guy again, whatever. But so like we decided to get a cupcake. Um, and he wanted to share cupcakes or share a cupcake. And I was like, Oh no, I wanted to, I wanted to get my own. And he was like, Oh, you're just a little fatty. Aren't you? And I was like, I was stunned. I was like literally stunned. Like this like, guy are you nagging me right now, you fucking monster. <laughs> he was. He was. And like so I Ugh. I should have ran out of that cupcake shop, but I didn't. I don't know why. Um and then but I did get my own cupcake. Um and he proceeded to just tell me about like how his mother physically abused him and like I was just like so many red flags. I was just, and it's like, I don't know if you experienced this, but like when I told people I was sober on dates, I heard all sorts of stories like that. Like people would just open up to me about their trauma, their own relationships with alcohol. And I was just like, oh my God, like, I don't, can we talk about anything else? Like, yes, I'm sober, but like, (laughs) I also like trauma dump. (laughs) Yeah. Like I also have hobbies and like a job and like other things. So Anyway, like as soon as I finished the cupcake, I ran out of there. I uh, clearly never saw that guy again, but I just like, yeah, but I was called a, uh, I was called a fatty for wanting my own cupcake. (laughs) You're like, I can make a decision that this is going no further, but I mean, I, and I, it sounded like you had a couple years at that point and you're like, I'm pretty secure in in the fact that I don't like this vibe. Thank you very much. Oh man. But I'm sorry that happened because that sucks. Like. (laughs) Just like, dude, I hope you're listening right now, dude. And you feel <laughs> like at least a little bit of shame. Uh, I, I mean, I don't like to like, you know, encourage shame, but it can be a healthy, <laughs> healthy mechanism. This, of like, let me not in do this that case, <laughs> I, in this case, I think he, I think he should feel the shame for a little bit. <laughs> it's a little, little sting, but that's yeah. what men's are for. Um, <laughs> oh man. I just like, I was so, you know, when they talk about like having a broken picker, um, yeah. <laughs> I just kept choosing like active lunatic, like substance abusers in my early recovery. And like my sponsees, I know you're listening. Don't do what I did. <laughs> um, I mean, I was like, like obsessed, not obsessed, but I was like really like pining for this guy. I like 
met in Orange County. And I was like, you know, an hour and a half drive to like go hang out with him. And he like let it slip that he was like definitely addicted to oxys at some point. I was just oh. like, oh, but he's so dreamy. <laughs> like, my God, just like such a broke, like it took me a really long time to like start to choose healthy people, even, you know, with many years of recovery, just cause like kind of unwinding that, you know, the attachment issues. Cause I think also mm-hmm. you know, this like terrifying spoiler alert, like recover, like alcoholism or addiction can definitely be seen as like an attachment disorder. And until I started to heal that stuff, I kept choosing people who were mm-hmm. not well <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Oh God. And yeah, just being like starved for like affection, attention, validation. Right. Ugh. Yeah. That's, you know, that, that reminds me of like, you know, a big part of my recovery journey has been getting in touch with being a sex and love addict. And like when I said I spent a lot of time with people that didn't respect me because I didn't respect myself, that's been, that has been a significant part of my, of my alcohol recovery journey is like, if I didn't stop drinking alcohol, I don't think that I ever would have unpacked my sex and love addiction. And it has, that has been huge for me. Like, significantly significant for my recovery to, to deal with that in therapy. And I've read all of the books and it's so not talked about, especially for women. You know, we think of sex addicts as, you know, men that are compulsively having sex with strangers, just porn addicts or something that's not like the love addiction part. But also I think that there is this like, and part of the reason we started the show is this idea that I think it can be pathologized within recovery that like sober sex is sex and love addiction. And so to kind of be able to open up like a healthy conversation of what does the spectrum of like a healthy relationship with sexuality Mm. and recovery look like? And it sounds like your book does a really good job of that. Yeah. That's such an interesting perspective. Yeah. It's, I I love that. Um, and you know, like kind of speaking of, again, of 12 step recovery, like we have this notion of a sex ideal, which is not so much like, who do I want to be with, but who do I want to show up as? Mm. in my like sexual romantic relationships. And I wonder if you have a sex ideal that you're growing towards today. Is this, this is for me, like what Mm -hmm. I'm growing towards. Um, Oh, I love this question. I'm just like, I, I guess I hate to be so like diplomatic. I'm just like really here for the journey. I am doing the work and like unpacking past past shit and dealing with the flare-ups as you would deal with an old injury, you know, and, um, yeah, just unpacking all of that. And, but I I think the big difference is that I have the tools now, you know, I have medication and therapy and, and peer support. And, um, I, yeah, everything that I didn't have when I was so lost and confused. So, um, anything that comes on that journey I'm here for. That's fucking awesome. And I mean, and it sounds like also that you have a partner that is down to do that journey with you, which I think is very, like, it's a beautiful thing to be working with because so much of this stuff is very difficult to even start to breach all alone. It is. And, you know, I, I, I actually, I met my partner in an AA meeting. I've, I've, <laughs> the best I've, place to meet people. Right. <laughs> I've only been to a handful of meetings, but I guess I went to the one I needed to go to. Um, but he, he told me that, you know, for him going to 12 step meetings was like going to feeling school. (laughs) And I love that. I love that phrasing. Cause he was like, I've just never been in a room with men crying, talking about their feelings. And it showed me that it's okay to, to be vulnerable like that. And I was so grateful that he shared that with me and I'm so grateful to have a partner who is so open about their feelings and we can talk, we can talk, (laughs) we can talk about things. And, you know, it's funny, like when I tell, when I tell that to, to some people they're about how, what, I don't know, when I'm bragging about how wonderful my boyfriend is, (laughs) that's one. um, yeah, sometimes people are like, wow, when, where did you meet him? And I'm like, Hey, hey, you gotta find, (laughs) you gotta find people that are like actively working on themselves, you know, like, and it's, it's funny because my first AA meeting, I was, I was a couple years sober, ironically. Um, but I I shared in that meeting that it was my first meeting. So he thought I was like 
a day, Newcomer. two days sober. Yeah. <laughs> so he wait, he didn't want to talk to me because he didn't want to 13th step me. And yeah, I, I appreciated He's good that. Dude. <laughs> He's a good dude. So I actually, I, I hit on him and I made it clear I was not a newcomer. Oh, he's like, oh, great, this lunatic. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think that's it, too. You're just like, you have to find your marbles before I can talk to you. Like, <laughs> But that's exactly. like, that's so sweet. I like that. I mean, and also, again, like to, you know, to be a safe person, to be in a relationship with, looking for a safe person to be in a relationship with, I think that that is like entirely overlooked. You know, like, to, can I take care of myself emotionally in a way? And can I seek somebody who's taking care of themselves emotionally? So we're not mm-hmm. going to be like eagles clinging to each other in like a death spiral (laughs) just like trauma bonding over and over I mean which is also you know FYI entirely possible to do in recovery but like Mm -hmm. you know I think that the point is spiritual growth so (laughs) hopefully not for too long um (laughs) so you know to to kind of wrap up we do a lightning round which is to kind of keep it easy and breezy and and uh and fun when we can often talk about some heavy stuff so don't think too hard. What's your favorite snack? <laughs> Goldfish. Is there a specific flavor? Um, I just, I, this is going to sound so weird. I just really like the original when there's like the side with a lot of salt on it. I want that directly on my tongue. I put That's... that on my tongue first. <laughs> I love how everybody has like a specific way that they eat goldfish or Oreos. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's like, I have to, ha- I like to crack them in half <laughs> with my teeth and eat the half separately for yeah. goldfish. What is your favorite pump up song? Well, the phrasing of this question made me think of pump up the jam by Technotronic. Which is a fucking um, fantastic classic. So I'm going to go fails. with that. <laughs> I, I second that's a really good pump up song uh, what is your favorite song to cry to in the shower <laughs> god you know there was the first time I've asked this question I've discovered it's my favorite question to ask sorry I had a really ridiculous like birthday alone one year where I sat in the back of an uber crying listening to everybody hurts by REM oh, <laughs> I was love so that I hope so it was dramatic <laughs> <laughs> I love that. (laughs) Mine is Into My Arms by Nick Cave. Okay. (laughs) Just like barf cry. Um, What turns you on? And that can be obviously sexually, but also like intellectually, creatively, whatever. What turns you on? You know, I'm learning that like I'm probably sapiosexual and just I love just like – I'm intellectually curious. I want to learn everything. And that's, I guess that's part of being a journalist, but like when, when Nick and I have intellectually stimulating conversations that just like really gets me really like gets me going, um, mentally. And then physically I love, like, I love a massage, like just getting into my body. When I go get him, when I get a massage, I leave feeling horny and it's because I'm I think it's because I was telling you, like, being on Lexpro has lowered my libido. Mm. There's something about, like, having my body touched for an an hour, an hour and a half straight to remind me that I have this flesh bag attached to me. (laughs) And it's like my meat suit because I am so cerebral and I'm just, I live so much above my neck that I forget I'm a body too. <laughs> That's cool. I like that. I mean, I also, it doesn't turn me on, but it makes me want to elect who is ever giving me a good massage, like as a world leader. I'm like, I hope that you have a position of power in the world because yeah. <laughs> you could do so much good. Um, <laughs> I love you so much. I would vote for you. Um, how do you reset if you're having a hard day? I, this is ridiculous. Um, I have a meditation closet in my apartment. Um, my, we moved into a, we had a one bedroom for years and then a three bedroom opened up, which is, as you know, you're from, you're from New York, you know, that's insane. Unreal. Um, so we (laughs) each have a home office and my, um, the closet in my office is I, it's a dedicated meditation space. So it's like, there's nothing in there. It's painted purple. And I have like, I just have like a little meditation cushion, some tarot cards, some incense. And like, that's where I go to like, just 
scroll. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) To look at my phone by myself. (laughs) Yeah, that's where I watch Netflix. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Finally, what do you love? Justice. I I love, yeah, I... I know. I know that's a weird answer, but like, I love seeing justice served. Um, and sometimes that comes in the form of schadenfreude when I get to see uh, billionaires fuck up. That feels like justice to me. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> it's Hard like watching, watching Elon Musk like hemorrhage because he thought he bought Twitter like as a bit. I'm I'm enjoying watching him lose an insane amount of money. That feels like justice. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it was towards like taxes, but I'll take that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but sure. like on a happier note, I I have two fur babies. I I love I love my puppy and my one-eyed cat. Oh, what are their names? <laughs> um, the cat is Meg White and <laughs> and our dog is Stevie Nicks. Amazing. Fantastic female (laughs) musician namesakes. Um, And so for anybody who wants to check out your work, your blog, your book, where can they find you? Yeah, um, I'm on all of the social medias at Tawny M. Lara. My book is called Dry Humping, A Guide to Dating, Relating, and Hooking Up Without Booze. a good (laughs) book title, I have to say. It's like a genius move. Thank (laughs) you. I thinking about it a lot. The reason I called it that is because as you know, and as this conversation has gone, this is a really heavy, this is heavy talking about sober sex and dating. It can get really heavy. So I wanted readers to pick up the book, kind of giggle at the title and be like, okay, she's going to be a little lighthearted with it. And you know, we're going to, we're going to get through this with some laughs. So it was really important to me. Um, and my, I have a weekly, um, sober dating and sober sex advice column called beyond liquid courage. Fantastic. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for joining us at the Royal We here on Sober Sex. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health, sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery, got it, spiritual growth. Recovery, recovery, got a spiritual growth. Sober, sex, you'll never 